Today's reading is from Matthew 14, 22 through 36. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boats, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to a land, a Genesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, welcome to Orlando Grace Church. Welcome back to many of you who were gone for Christmas break. Uh, welcome if there are any RTS hybrid students here this week. We're glad to have you. If you've been around for a while, you know that we have been walking through the Gospel of Matthew every January to the week before Easter. And wherever we leave off the week before Easter, we pick it back up uh, the following January. And so last week before Easter, we finished by teaching uh, the passage where Jesus feeds the 5,000. And so naturally now we're picking up where Jesus very famously walks on water. And as many of you know, um, at least if you follow us on Facebook, we've talked to you. Uh, this week, we lost our sweet dog after almost 18 years. And many of you know that pain. Um, but one of the blessings in it is that you get to sit around and talk about the, the blessings that that dog was to your family. And one of our favorite stories was when we went to get her. We, we found her in the classifieds because that's what you did in 2005. And the classifieds took us to Polk County's finest breeder, which if you know Polk County, you can hear the, the sarcasm in my voice. And if you're from Polk County, I'm sorry, maybe it's changed a lot since 2005. But we were signing the papers and, and the breeder said, now where are you going to be taking this dog? And there were no G's, where are you going to be taking this dog? And, uh, and I said, Italy. And without missing a beat, he said, you're going to be driving or flying. And I was thinking, I, I didn't know there was a road to Europe. And, and with the, the most serious voice I could muster, I said, I think we're going to fly this time. And without missing a beat again, he said, well, then you're going to need a crate. I said, well, thank you for your wisdom and experience in, in this matter. And it was funny because there are obviously no roads across the Atlantic Ocean. It would be ridiculous to see anything other than a boat you know, going on top of, on top of the sea. Cars don't travel on top of the sea. People don't walk on top of the sea. And so we laugh at that until it actually happens. 
When it happens, it brings terror into the people that see it, and that's exactly what happens in our passage today. The disciples were with Jesus when he was feeding the 5,000, and Jesus, before the crowd was even dismissed, he dismissed his disciples, and he told them, I want you to go get in the boat and meet me on a far off shore on the other side of the sea. And Jesus stayed, he dismissed the crowd, and he prayed. And I'm going to be a little more allegorical this morning with this text, which I think is fine and justified in many ways. But as you heard, read, when the disciples, when they got out on the sea, and it, had, it was apparently late at night, the storm came, the winds were high, the seas were high. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to talk about the inevitable storms that come into our life and how our only hope is the one and only Lord over the storm. You know, I, I know many of you in this room, and I know that you are walking through storms. Storms bigger than losing a dog or having a bad football team. You know, storms of losing a loved one or having a failing health or a failing family or a, or a new baby and you're weathering the storm of new sleep. You know, we will have storms in this life. Wind will blow. They will come. The question is not whether we will have a storm, but when we're in a storm. So this morning, I want to look at this passage and I want to see where the storms come from, how Jesus gets us through those storms, and how he is truly the Lord of the storm. So first, where the storms come from. I have this habit I have for about 20 years now. I find one or two places in town, normally they're coffee shops, and I try to spend a few hours a week consistently in that place. And I was in one of those places about two weeks ago, and one of the main guys who works there, he came to me, we, we always talk about things, and often it's spiritual, and he said, he asked me, why is it that bad things happen to people? And, and he, he particularly had in his mind this homeless guy who just could not seem to get his life on track. And I explained to him, well, at, at the highest level, the most general level, bad things happen because we are sinful people living in a fallen world. That, that's just because someone's trials or difficulties are more significant than the other person doesn't mean that their sin is greater, but just the fact that we live in a fallen world. This world was not designed to have pain, anxiety, depression, loneliness, strife, or death. That was not the design. But in Genesis 3, we decided that we wanted to go our own way as in Adam and Eve and all of us who have come after Adam and Eve. And at that moment, everything in this world changed. Now, pain and strife are guaranteed in this life. If you haven't experienced that, you just haven't lived long enough. Pain and strife will come just by living in this world. So that's, that's the top level. Then you have this other category of pain and strife that comes from living a disobedient life to God. You know, and that, that can come through added pain and strife that we bring on ourselves from self-destructive decisions, but it can also come just from not not doing what God wants us to do. And we, we call, call that biblical discipline. God's going to do whatever he can. Not can, that sounds like he's limited. He will do what's necessary to bring us back to him. Probably the best example that I can think about this in, that when I think about this in scripture is Jonah. You know, Jonah was running from what God wanted him to do. So God brought a literal storm to bring him back to what God knew was best for him. But in this passage, we have something 
very different going on. Unlike Jonah, the disciples were not in this storm because of their disobedience, but precisely because they were being obedient to Jesus. And if you believe that Jesus is who Jesus is, who he claims to be, then you have to embrace the fact that in this passage, Jesus was commanding them to do something that would bring difficulty in their life. If Jesus knows everything, he knew he was sending this group of disciples into a storm in the middle of the night. So why would he do that? Why would Jesus send the disciples out into a storm into the middle of the night? When he could have just saved them the anguish and the pain of, of going later or going a different way or Jesus just making sure there wasn't a storm there. That's not what he chose to do. And it seems clear to me that Jesus sends them into the storm so that his disciples could truly see their need for him. So this is something that happens in other places of Scripture. This is something that is many of our lived experiences. God allows us to endure certain storms that we might see our need for him even more. And so it really, if you look across all of Scripture, you see that it is God's habit of showing us our need before he provides for that need. And sometimes showing us our need before we even know that we have that need. And you know, way back in Genesis 1, when God created everything, he would create something, and then what would he say? It is good. And he created another thing. He'd say, it is good. It is good. But then he got to Adam. Adam, he had created. There was no Eve yet. And what did he say? It is not good. He knew that Adam needed a companion, that he should have a companion. But Adam didn't see that need yet. So what is the very next thing that God did in that passage? He had him name the animals, which I remember as a young Christian thinking, how weird is this? <laughs> you know, oh, it is not good that Adam is alone, so I'm going to have him name the animals. Like, I, I, he's going to find a pet to be his companion or something. No, because as Adam named each set of animals, however in the world that went down, he was able to see there's a male lion and a female lion, a she-giraffe and a he-giraffe. Every one of these animals has a companion, and I'm sure by the end of it, he felt this need, and then God provided for it. But in this passage, Jesus, Jesus isn't sh just showing the disciples their need for a companion. He's showing them their need for a savior. And it's important to remember that this miracle is in all four gospels. Okay, there aren't a lot that are in all four Gospels, but if all four Gospel writers are sure to in include something, it, I mean, they're all important, but that should just put this extra spotlight on what's happening in this passage. All four Gospel writers include this Gospel precisely because they want us to see Jesus for who he is. In Mark's account, Herod asks, preceding these events, what sort of man is this Jesus? And then Jesus feeds the 5,000 and he walks across the sea. Here in Matthew, we see that he feeds the 5,000, he walks across the sea, and then, as we'll see in a moment, he leads Peter to walk across with him. Does this sound familiar? God calling his people across the sea, God providing heavenly bread from above, all the gospel writers, they want us to join with the disciples and the crowd and even King Herod to ask this question, what sort of man is this? And the answer that all four authors are wanting us to see is that he is just like his father. And in the same way that the father saved Israel back in Exodus, so this man, Jesus, is the son of God who has come to save you. 
when we are so prone, you know, when, when storms come in our life to look everywhere but Jesus for comfort, other things to be our Savior. I, one pastor I've heard called them our other lesser life rafts. And while those other lesser life rafts, they may distract us, they may help us to cope, they will never truly give us the comfort that we, that we need to sustain us through these storms. Jesus, though, sends the storm to show them the insufficiency of all their other lesser life rafts and who he ultimately is as their savior. They can't row, they can't swim for it, they have no other option. They are truly stuck out here in the middle of the night, in the middle of the storm with the high waves, the wind, and the rain. And if you're experiencing a storm today, it's, it's necessary when we're teaching from this text that we ask, might this be a storm that God has allowed in your life to show you that he is the only life raft that you need? He is ultimately the only life raft that we have. You know, we may be tempted to think, I will be fine if I could just have this one thing. You know, things are really hard, but if I could have that one thing, and if that one thing is anything other than Jesus Christ, it isn't going to sustain us. It will let us down at some level. Whether it's money, a relationship, a child, a job, might God be withholding something from you? Not because he's upset or punishing you, but because he loves you and he wants you to see that thing, whatever it is that we think is truly going to make us happy, that is truly going to help us weather the storm, that thing is insufficient if that thing is not Jesus Christ. And once we're open to that possibility, because again, he wants us to know him and experience him. He does this out of love for us, just like he does with these disciples. Once we're open to that possibility, then we can see how it is that Jesus sustains us in the storm, which is the second part. So when the boat was apparently a long way from the shore, it was clearly the middle of the night, the winds and the waves, they were at their peak. The disciples looked out, they saw a man walking on the water and they were absolutely terrified. Now, I think it's interesting that Matthew doesn't say that they were terrified before this happened. Now, surely, given their plight, we know they would have been concerned, scared, but then they see Jesus walking on the water, and Matthew is clear to say, at that moment, that's when they became absolutely terrified. As Reagan read, they cried out in fear, it's a ghost. So why were they so terrified? I, I kind of think there's two levels to their fear. At one level, first, obviously, it's totally unnatural to look out and see somebody walking on water. And when you see something so unnatural, so supernatural, so unexpected, you are going to have some anxiety about this because you can't explain this. This is not, not happening the way that you would expect it to happen. So I think everybody at some level, when we see something truly odd like that, we would be prone to have a little bit of fear. But I think something else is going on here too. These disciples, they're getting a glimpse of holiness. And I'm gonna support this through this text and others. But the holiness of God is something that we think we want to see until we see it. And I remember as a kid, I was, I was probably 10 years old. My brother and I really wanted to watch A Nightmare on Elm Street. And because my parents are reasonable people, they did not let us watch A Nightmare on Elm Street. But then one night we had a babysitter 
who we told, my parents are totally cool with this. Let us watch this. And the babysitter let us watch A Nightmare on Elm Street. We thought we wanted to watch A Nightmare on Elm Street until we watched it. And then we had nightmares for months. My brother and I still talk about this as a traumatic moment in our childhood. And I don't want to make too close a comparison between Jesus Christ and Freddy Krueger, but I, I think the point works here. There are things that we think we want to experience, but when we do, it becomes truly terrifying. And the holiness of God is is at the top of that list. So I'm using Keller here. But God designed us to be in the garden, to walk with him in the cool of the day. And that means that our, our souls are built to relate to God and to desire to God and want fellowship with God. The way that a, a moth relates to a light, the way that a bee relates to honey, the way, that, uh, I guess a flower makes honey, a bee relates to a flower, the way that a hungry Stomach relates to food. That's how we're designed. We long to see and experience the face of God. But we decided to live independent of God. We decided to live for ourselves. And because we did, we are now traumatized by the holy. We decided that we want to be God. And now the holiness of God that we desire traumatizes us, terrifies us. You know, this, is, this is why we have books on the New York Times bestselling list today like, You Are a Bad A, How to Stop Questioning Your Greatness and Start Living an Awesome Life. I mean, if this doesn't epitomize uh, the natural state of our souls, I don't know what does. Now, because of the decisions that we have made, the holiness that we desire now terrifies us because it directly confronts the reality that we have created. We are not holy, but we act as if we are. So when we are confronted with true holiness, we fear the one we were made to long for. So our plight is a trap of our own making. You know, much of the world today is like the 5,000. You know, the, the 5,000 that Jesus fed, they, we have no reason to believe that they had saving faith. They were enamored with Jesus' miracles, so much so that in John's account, they, John tells us that they tried to take Jesus captive to go and make him king. Not king over their own lives, but king over Israel so he could oust Rome and make their lives a little bit easier. But when at the end of the Gospels, they're faced with the holiness of Jesus, they don't want to make him king, they murder him. And I'm convinced that this is the main reason the disciples are scared. They're confronted with Jesus' holiness, his power, his might. And Mark's account supports this as well when he says in Mark chapter 5, and he got into the boat with them. This is a little bit later in the story. And the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. And here it is. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So that there are things they don't yet understand about Jesus. And Jesus is creating this moment to help them understand who he is. And in Jesus' holiness, we see two ways that he sustains these disciples and us in the storm. He intercedes for them and he calls them closer to himself. So interceding. You know, interceding is something that I think is very often overlooked in this passage. When Jesus sent the disciples away and the crowd dismissed, what is the one thing that Jesus then did? He prayed. And we have enough accounts of Jesus' prayers to have every reason to believe that he was praying for his disciples. 
interceding for them before they even knew what was brewing. Before they even knew there was cause for concern, Jesus was already interceding for them, praying that they would be sustained, that God's will would be done in their life through the storm that he knew was coming on them. In Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, that we as a church read last spring, he writes, one way to think of Christ's intercession is simply this. Jesus is praying for you right now. Even when our prayer life stinks most of the time, But what if you heard Jesus praying aloud for you in the next room? Few things would calm us more deeply than that. Matthew Henry once wrote that whenever any believer goes into a trial, her Lord goes into prayer. Just think about that. Before we even enter the trial and all the way through that storm, that difficulty, whatever it is, the one who has unfettered access to the throne room is interceding on our behalf. When we ask questions like, where is Jesus in this trial? The answer, he's praying for you. He's interceding for you. He's praying that we would be sustained, that we would stay faithful, and that God would use these circumstances to draw us closer to him. Which leads very logically to the second way he's sustaining us. He's drawing us closer. And we see this with Peter. He calls Peter to him. So Jesus says, when they're in great fear, he says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Well, in the Greek, it literally says, take heart, I am. So you may remember going all the way back to Moses in the burning bush. Moses asks God, who shall I say sent me? And what did God say? Tell them I am sent you. This all-encompassing name that communicates his power and his omnipotence and his, his holiness and his righteousness. This, this, this name, I am, simply encapsulates it all in his character. And then in John chapter 8, toward the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he stood up in front of many of the religious leaders of that day and he said, before Abraham, I am. So at this point, Peter hears this, and you know Peter's sort of uh, more of a shoot first, aim later kind of guy at this point, which I identify with uncomfortably. So, <laughs> and he says, "If this is you, let me come to you." And Jesus says, "Come." So Peter got out of the boat and he begins to walk toward Jesus, but something happened. At some point, Peter's Peter's focus ceased to be Jesus, and he began, the text says, to look at the the wind and the waves around him, and he began to sink. And I think it's really interesting that um, comparably to other major biblical events, there are so few paintings of of this scene. And And I have to think it's probably because at least in the Roman Catholic medieval ages, they didn't want to paint anything that could possibly depict a shortcoming of Peter. But I I actually, I don't think Peter was presumptuous or arrogant in jumping out of the boat. I think he did exactly the right thing. He seems like a very normal person responding to Jesus. But once he got out there, things got difficult. And Jesus reached out his hand. He took hold of him. And Jesus had strong but loving and truthful and helpful words for Peter. And he says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter doesn't say, why didn't you trust in yourself more, Peter? Or, Peter, why didn't you just believe in your greatness and live your best life? 
That's not what Jesus says. Jesus is asking Peter, why didn't you believe? And immediately upon entering the boat, the storm stops. It's like this ultimate confirmation. I mean, just, you have to just put yourself in the disciples' shoes there for a minute. Our temptation, I think like Peter in storms, is to take our eyes off of Jesus and focus on the circumstances around us, to focus on the storms. But this passage is a call to keep our focus on Jesus in the midst of those storms. And as long as Peter keeps his eyes on Jesus, he's walking on water, but when his eyes move from Jesus to the wind and waves, that's when his faith began to waver and he began to sink. And in this passage, Peter is just such a beautiful example of what saving faith looks like. So Jesus calls him first, then Peter responds to him. But like Peter, most of us have these moments when, when things get tough and our, our faith begins to be more grounded in our circumstances than in keeping our focus on Jesus. And the inevitable result when our eyes are on our circumstances and not Jesus is that doubt's going to creep in. That, that's going to happen. When we're consumed with the bank account, when our loneliness overtakes us, when we're just constantly thinking about and focusing on the next doctor's report, what it's going to say, when we're focusing and consumed by these circumstances and not Jesus, the result is that we will begin to see doubts in our faith, in the storm. Because when we're consumed with those things, when those things is where our hope primarily is, we're putting our hope in the lesser raft. When uh, our return from Mississippi after the break got delayed because of our dog, it, it got a little more complicated because early the next morning, there was a big cold front coming in from the west, as they do, and, and we had to be gone by like 6.15. And it wasn't just any cold front. These were, we were thunderstorm warnings, tornado warnings, so we were up early. And just as we were getting in our car at 6.20 and pulling out, I mean, it was the sun had already technically rose, but it, it risen, risen, uh, but it was pitch black. It was thundering, lightning. The rain was beginning to come down. Our, our, our phones were beginning to light up with tornado alerts, and we got off the road, and of course, we're headed east, and within just a few minutes, the clouds are breaking, and we can see the sun rising on the horizon. Now, in front of us, it looks peaceful. Behind us, it does not, just blackness. And so for most of us in this car, we're looking forward at the sun rising through the breaking clouds, and at least I have this deep sense of, okay, we made it. I have one little one in the back that is consumed with what's behind us, giving us reports the whole way, if, whether he sees tornadoes or not. E even 11 hours later, as we're pulling into Orange County, I'm driving 80 miles, no, sorry, 75, 75, I was driving 75 miles an hour, and the window went down in the car. I was like, buddy, what are you doing? And he literally had his head out the window looking for tornadoes to be sure they weren't behind us. And there's, you know, there's some bit of responsibility there that I'm thankful for and want to encourage with that guy. But it was a great reminder of the comfort we felt looking forward and the fear that we, that we felt looking behind. And in the same way, Jesus wants us to look to him to keep our eyes on him like the rising sun for comfort so that we will not be consumed with the circumstances that surround us. 
And what I love is that by calling us to focus on Him, He's reminding us that it isn't the quality of our faith that matters, but the object of our faith. We keep our eyes on the object and the quality grows. You know, Peter wasn't saved because he mustered up enough faith, you know, the way that some theological streams would, would suggest. He was saved because of Jesus' call for him, because Jesus' love for him, and we see the way that he's saved in Peter's cry. He simply says, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. I mean, this isn't that he's mustering up enough faith. It is his object is clear, and he's asking Jesus, save me from the sinking. Save me from the storm. So, I think we too should hear Jesus' rebuke that he has for Peter. In our difficulties, in our storms, are we focusing on the circumstances or are we focusing on the object of our faith, Jesus Christ? Jesus rebukes Peter not because he's angry, not because he wants to punish Peter, not because he wants to embarrass Peter in front of the other disciples. He rebukes Peter because he wants Peter to see that Jesus is the only true source of comfort and satisfaction in the midst of this storm. This is what real love does. Real love says hard things because it helps the people we say these things to. Every parent in this room knows this. Children, you should know this. <laughs> Your parents say hard things because they love you. And so what real love is willing to say is you have to change this. You have to give up control. And Jesus is saying that, Peter, you will always fear. And he's telling all of us, you will always fear until you set your eyes solely on me and let me sail this boat. And our temptation, again, like the crowd in the five the, the crowd of 5,000, is to want just enough of Jesus that he's going to make our lives better, but not to fully give him control. You know, the rebuke that Jesus gives Peter and he gives us is basically the call to give him full control of our lives, which isn't going to be easy. I mean, every one of us knows about an area of our life that God wants us to give to him, and we currently are not. We're not giving to him. I've used this illustration before, but back in the day when it was more normal for someone just to show up unannounced and knock on the door, or maybe nowadays someone texts you and says they're coming over to your house. You know, I don't know, I'm sure our house is the only one that operates like this, but we're frantically trying to clean up the house and throwing all the junk into one room that they won't see. And we have this idea that we can do the same thing with God. Most of the house looks good, except that room that maybe he won't see. But God sees everything in our lives. There are parts of lives that we hide thinking that he doesn't see it, but he does. And he's saying, I want full control of your life. N not as a way to earn your merit or show your loyalty to, to, loyalty to me, but because it's for your joy and your satisfaction that you do this. Because we've seen all the way back from Genesis 3, you make a bad God for yourself. We make a bad God for ourselves. And so when we go into church and we read our Bibles, but we're not giving him full control, we're looking at the circumstances more than Jesus, what we're essentially doing is looking at our doctrinal truths through the difficult circumstances that we're going through. What Jesus is saying is I want you to look at all the difficult circumstances that you're going through through the truth of who Jesus Christ is. 
And when we do that, it's, it's, it's like we, we see a blurry world and all of a sudden we put these glasses on and it's clear. I don't, I've, I've not had glasses, but I know with my mom and my wife tell the same story. They, they, they didn't know that you were supposed to see individual leaves on trees. They didn't know that lights weren't supposed to have halos around them. They didn't know any better, but when they put the glasses on, they were amazed. Oh my goodness, I see everything so much more clearly now. When we look at Jesus primarily and then filter our difficult circumstances through him, we have a new lens to understand and process what's going on around us as he calls us closer to him. He is the Lord of the storm. He is the only one who is capable to sustain us in every trial. But we haven't answered one really important question yet. Why is it that Jesus is able to be the Lord of the storm? This is the last and most and shortest part for what it's worth. All right, last two verses. Well, it's, not, it's 32 and 33. And when they got in the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. So Jesus literally stopped the storm, and in doing so, he's declaring, I have power over everything in this natural, in this natural world. I, I have power over nature. He's already demonstrated he has power over the, uh, the spiritual world as he casts out demons. As we see at the very end of the text, he has power over even illnesses. He, can, he has power over everything. There is nothing over which Jesus does not con- have control, and now the disciples see this for the very first time and they worship him and they proclaim truly you are the son of God so they see his holiness and they're no longer scared by it they bow down before it they give up this illusion that they're in control of their lives and they submit to Jesus every aspect of their life and this is how the trap that we have made for ourselves is fixed This is how the holiness of God that we long for doesn't have to terrify us any longer. We bow down and we admit that we are in a trap of our own making that we have placed ourselves in and we give our lives to Jesus. We don't try and hide from the holiness of God the way that Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden, hiding from God when, when he came and, tried, and called them to himself. We embrace the fact that we are totally exposed as sinners. God sees every room in the lives of our hearts, everything. And when we do this, the greatest storm that we will ever face is taken from us. At the crux of this trap, is the reality that we have rebelled against our holy God and our unholiness demands a holy wrath. And that's why holiness terrifies us. We know at some level we long for the thing, but that thing is not gonna go well for us. We know what we deserve for our betrayal. And I would go so far as to say this is true of every person, whether they are a Christian or not. You can find this in your non-Christian friends. There's a sense deep down, if you can get there, that God is holy, we are not, and that's not going to go well. I was talking to a friend uh, this week, and this person has a friend who is not a Christian, and, and he's been looking for a way to get into spiritual conversations with this person, and somehow death came up. 
And he was like, well, that's, that's a good way to get to spiritual conversations. And this person said, I can't talk about death. It scares me too much. I just act like it's not going to happen. So why would death scare that person so much? Because at that person's core, they know that this is not going to go well. But because God loves us so much, he took on flesh and God the Son, Jesus Christ, endured the wrath that we deserve given by God the Father, that we would never know that wrath, that we would never know that storm. And it doesn't just stop there. Not only that, that, but when we bow down and when we embrace the fact that we have made this trap, that we are fully exposed, that God sees every area of our life, we submit it to him, then we are clothed in his righteousness, never to have enmity with God ever again, but to only enjoy the sweet blessing of fellowship with God as a beloved son and daughter. That's what our Savior has done for us. That's why he is the Lord of the storm and able to sustain us in every storm that we will endure in this life and bring us to a kingdom one day that will never know a storm again. I was talking with someone a couple weeks ago about what kind of church I want OGC to be. Not that I'm the ultimate word for what OGC is, but I've got thoughts. And I was telling this person that, you know, when I was pastoring in my 20s and 30s, Although I wouldn't have admitted it, like I wanted to pastor the cool church in town. And for a season, we were that, and then we weren't, and that was, that, that was kind of a bummer. But as I've gotten older, not only am I okay not pastoring what's considered the cool church in town, I really don't want to. <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to pastor a, a flashy church. I want to pastor a vibrant church. I don't want to be a church with, that it, that's, that, is dic- whose value is dictated by this fleeting value of cultural coolness. That's not what we should want our church to be. We want to be a vibrant church, and that means that we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus and give him glory and praise when things are good because that's going to make us humble. And we look to Jesus and we give him glory and we praise him when things are hard, knowing that he will sustain us through these trials to see that he not only allows these storms and sustains us in the storms, but that he uses them to conform us more into the image of the Son and the more we are conformed into that image, the more satisfied and joyful we are going to be in this life regardless of what is transcending around us. I don't want us to see Jesus as someone who just makes our life easier. I want us to see Jesus as our only hope and purpose in this life. I want us to be a church that hears Jesus' words. Do not fear. I am. Let's pray. God, we thank you that that you are in control. You know, and and you are loving. (laughs) You know, it's it's not people have this picture of you as like you do your best to help us in the storms, but you can only do so much. That's not true. You are in control of everything. 
And then other people feel like, God, well, you're in control of everything, but you must not love us because the storms are happening. That's not true either, because you have ordained these storms. You promised to be with us in these storms, to intercede with us in the person of Jesus Christ in these storms, to conform us through these storms, making us more fruitful, faithful, joyful people. And you promise through the work of Jesus Christ and the calling of your Holy Spirit that you will bring us to a world that will no longer know a storm. God, we thank you for what you've done. And I pray this morning that this wouldn't just be a fun story, it wouldn't just be a doctrinal truth, but that this would be real inside each and every one of us, that your spirit would awaken our hearts and our souls to see joy. When outside of the Christian worldview, there should be none. We love you, and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.